I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. I don't normally release a podcast episode on Thursdays, but these are not normal times, and because the greatest tragedy to strike the Jewish world since the Shoah took place less than a week ago, and because the state of Israel is now at war with Hamas in the Gaza Strip, the Orthodox Conundrum podcast is going to be a little bit different until, with God's help, the war has been won or, so to speak, begins to cool off. I say cool off because, as our guest today will suggest, this war may continue for many months, though hopefully not always with the same intensity that we're experiencing this week. To be very upfront, I'm not really in the mood to complain about problems in our Orthodox world. Many of those problems will certainly still be with us when this war is Bezrat Hashem 1. In the meantime, I want to emphasize the good and the ways that we can help each other and allow our latent love for each other to become more apparent. For that reason, I plan to continue releasing episodes, very possibly more than once a week, perhaps not on a regular schedule, and with varying lengths and styles. But I don't expect that for the next few weeks we'll be dealing with the typical issues that we normally confront. The important topics that the podcast addresses are no less important now, but they are less acute. I don't imagine most people want to hear about orthodox conundrums when over 1,200 people have been savagely murdered over a hundred innocent men, women, and children cruelly taken hostage, and thousands more lie in hospitals, wounded and in pain. So instead, I'll be talking about this war, what happened, what it means to all of us, and ways we should react, help, and move forward. Sadly, there's still a lot to talk about. When God willing, the situation on the ground is different, I'll go back to a normal podcast format and schedule. In the meantime, please reach out to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or on our Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, to let me know what topics you would like to hear about over the coming weeks. Tonight we're going to talk about this war, and I'm honored to host my old friend, Dr. Matthew Levitt, who's a world-renowned expert on international terrorism, and who has authored books and articles on both Hamas and Hezbollah. Dr. Matthew Levitt is the former Wexler Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he directs the Institute's Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Intelligence and Analysis at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, and before that as an FBI counterterrorism analyst, including work on the Millennial and September 11th plots. He also served as a State Department counterterrorism advisor to General James L. Jones, the Special Envoy for Middle East Regional Security. Dr. Levitt teaches at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and the Center for Jewish Civilization, and has previously taught at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitze School of Advanced International Studies. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and sits on the advisory boards of several think tanks around the world. Widely published, Dr. Levitt's most recent book is Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God, and his latest monograph is Rethinking U.S. Efforts on Counterterrorism Toward a Sustainable Plan Two Decades After 9-11. Dr. Matthew Levitt, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thanks for having me. But given how long we've known each other, you're going to have to call me Matt. I think I'm going to have to do that. Now, Matt, you published an article yesterday in Foreign Affairs entitled The War Hamas Always Wanted. So let's just jump right in. What does that title mean? What does it mean, The War They Always Wanted? So I think that a lot of people have assumed that since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force of arms in 2007, and let's remind people uh, that that's force of arms not targeting Israel, but targeting fellow Palestinians, including throwing people off of buildings and stuff like that. But since Hamas took over uh, the Gaza Strip, 
that it would be, and someone or would have argued until maybe Saturday, that it was co-opted by the responsibilities of governance. That the day-to-day needs to collect garbage and pay teacher salaries and whatnot made it so that it was more focused on that, understood it had responsibilities, understood that if it reacted, if it acted too wildly, that, that Israel would be in a position to really retaliate in a way that would put its entire political program at risk. And that therefore, um, you know, it was more moderate. It would still say nasty things. It would never become a Zionist organization. It would fire rockets at Israel from time to time. If payments from Qatar came late, there'd be rockets. If, you know, And then there'd be other groups, whether Palestinian Islamic Jihad or some Salafi Jihadis to the right, even of Hamas, who would do things from time to time. And maybe Hamas would rein them in. At one point, Hamas did have an anti-rocket battalion to stop other groups from shooting rockets at Israel when it didn't want it to happen. And sometimes it wouldn't have allowed that to happen. But now it's clear that, A, the Israeli political echelon across the political spectrum bought into this idea that you could buy off Hamas with economic incentives for stability for a de facto long-term hudna, a long-term truce. And we now know that that was not the case, that Hamas played a long game. Over the course of time, it built up its capabilities. It tried different things, tunnels into Israel, different types of rockets. Ultimately, invested in tunnels, not into Egypt to smuggle goods to the West, not into Israel attack tunnels to the East to get into Israel because the Israelis ultimately stopped that too, but tunnels domestically within the Gaza Strip. The Israeli military refers to these as the uh, the Gaza Metro, uh, which is what most of the Israeli Air Force strikes are targeting now. If you see people targeting like streets and among residential buildings, why is that happening? It's what's underground they're trying to, to, to knock out. Um, in an effort to at some they lure the IDF into Gaza into a quagmire where they'd be able to hit them with roadside bombs and pump up here an attack and pump up there an attack and incur some significant losses. Ultimately, Hamas did not moderate. And what Hamas said to us throughout this time that ultimately what they really want is to uh, have a single Palestinian Islamist state and all of what they would describe as historic Palestine, meaning Gaza, the West Strip, and all of Israel, that they meant it. And uh, so that's one part of, of this that's important. The second part is it's very, very easy to play Monday morning quarterback. A little harder for you and me being Patriots fans. There's not much quarterback anymore. But for the other people, it's it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback with 2020 hindsight. We'll look back and see that actually Hamas told us they were going to do this. But I don't blame people for missing it. I am a Hamas analyst and I missed it uh, because they talk trash all the time. They say all kinds of things. And that doesn't mean that they mean everything. But Salah Haleruri, who's the deputy chief of Hamas, now based in Lebanon. He had been based, he had been based in Turkey. He started his career in the West Bank for many, many years. He's been the, the main person, though he has a quote-unquote political position overseeing military terrorist activity in the West Bank. He had an interview with a Hezbollah-affiliated outlet where he said, you know, we're looking at a regional war. And uh, in retrospect now, we, I think we really need to acknowledge this was the war, then maybe they really believed it was the war to end all wars, or maybe it was just for them the first really big onslaught. And the reason why right now, well, I think it was very close because of the threat of normalization with Saudi Arabia, which unlike the Abraham Accords with the UAE and Bahrain, with all you know, respect and credit to them, is not the same as Saudi Arabia, custodian of the two holy holy sites. Um, 
the, the most significant power in the Gulf. And they feared that there would be uh, a cascade effect of A, an, uh, a de facto alliance of people uh, and countries arrayed against Iran and its proxies, the threats that those present to them in Saudi, in UAE, in Israel. And then from Hamas's perspective, not only is the Palestinian cause being downgraded so that it no longer has a veto on anything that the Arabs ever do vis-a-vis Israel, but Hamas in particular would be on the outs because the militant Islamists would be yesterday's news. So I really do think ultimately this was the war Hamas always wanted. Let me ask you then, you mentioned how Hamas itself has had these anti-rocket battalions to stop Islamic Jihad or other groups, for example, from launching rockets. So all along, was that just a ruse to lull Israel into complacency and this was the plan all along? Or has something possibly changed? No, I think this was a change. And it was, I don't think when Hamas took over the Christians, it knew how it was going to translate this. I wrote a piece years ago talking about Hamas's ideological crisis. It's finally in power. It wanted to be in power. It wanted to control at least part of historic, all historic Palestine against you, right? But all of a sudden, it, it couldn't be what it calls a resistance, what I would call a terrorist organization, right? Because it was effectively deterred. It didn't have the capabilities. It took years for them to figure out how to navigate this. And trial and error, tunnels, missiles being sent by ship from Iran to Sudan, up through Egypt, through the Sinai, through other tunnels. And ultimately, we, we got to today. I, I, I do think that this was something that they've been talking about with Hezbollah and Iran. And by the way, this is straight out of Hezbollah's playbook. There's no way Hezbollah didn't provide strategic guidance for this. I don't think they did tactically on the ground, but strategic, absolutely. Um, I don't think this was ever a, a given. These are groups that that they developed plans as a, other militaries would, frankly. Different plans for different situations. And this was executed now. I think they experienced... Um, catastrophic success. They captured more people, I think, uh, took hostage, I should say, more people than they thought they would have. They were able to penetrate into Israel further, deeper, longer than they anticipated. That said, it was a tremendous intelligence coup by Hamas to figure out that there were very few soldiers on the border and that the Israelis, and what can only be described as hubris, that the IDF was using primarily sensors and cameras and remote controlled automatic weapons that were all controlled by a cellular network, which if Hamas took some drones and attached some grenades to them and dropped grenades into a few little places, you'd knock out the entire cellular system and effectively Israel would go blind. Um, Mind-boggling. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about this idea that Hamas is a victim, I'm calling it that in very, uh, very large quotation marks, of its own success where they were more successful than they planned to be or expected to be, which I've heard some commentators mention. What did they think was going to happen? What do you think that they were planning to do before this, quote-unquote, success of Hamas? First of all, let's recognize that even if it was catastrophic success, they turned into the skid. Uh, Ismail Haniya from Qatar uh, issued you know, one of those egregious things he said in a long time, and he's known for egregious things. As this was happening, as it became clear what was happening, ending, this is only going to end in victory or martyrdom. Um, uh, so they, they, they own it. But I think that several things happened. I, 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 look, I don't like the comparisons between Hamas and ISIS as if everything has to be ISIS. Though certainly a lot of the barbarity 
barbarism we're seeing is, is of that ilk. But I think the better comparison is ISIS storming Mosul when it first began to take things over. They had no idea they'd be that successful. Mm-hmm. They went, nobody was there, they went a little further, went a little further, found some weapons, took that to next thing you know, they've taken over big swaths of Syrian Iraq. It's a similar situation here. I don't think they anticipated it would take the idea of that long to get their stuff together. I don't think they anticipated that there'd be so few defenses. I don't think they anticipated that they'd be able to literally knock down such big parts of the fence. And by the way, it's quite clear. Not only did Hamas go in, Palestinian Islam, when Islamic Jihad went in, we believe that probably about 120 of the hostages are held by Hamas, and maybe 30 or so held by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and then others went in, just people. Um, look, at least one guy left behind an ISIS flag. That doesn't mean ISIS was involved in this operation. It means this is the, you know, the, the world deal and alliance of, of, of one of the many terrorists who was in there. I can't explain. It's too soon. It's been six days. And let's be clear, this is not going to be a six-day war. It's going to be a six-month conflict. All this type of stuff is going to come out in spades in time. Right now, it's just a little much to grapple with, try to figure out not only the levels of successful planning and intelligence that went into this in the part of Hamas, I don't have to like them to recognize that, and the level of failure uh, on, on the Israeli side. Well, what did Hamas think was going to happen? I don't mean in terms of their own success or failure, but what did they think, as far as you know, Matt, Israel's response would be? Because now Israel says, we are simply going to destroy every member of Hamas. Was that what Hamas anticipated and didn't care, or did they think something less acute would happen to them? So there are several levels here. I think Hamas had several goals. One, to puncture a big hole into the sense Israel's a sense of deterrence, and the sense of, of, that others have that Israel is uh, uh, very, very capable. And basically say, look, we can do it, so can you. Khalid Mishal, another uh, senior Hamas person, has come out and called for you know uh, protests in favor of Hamas all over the world and called on uh, uh, Israel's neighbors to join the war and said, you know, you, you should give money and do jihadist money, but really you should, you, should, you should go and participate in something. I think they meant to undermine normalization with Saudi Arabia. I think they had a sense, whether it was a guarantee or a promise or a sense, we don't know. But I think they had a sense that if they were particularly successful, uh, I'll describe that in a second, that there would be other fronts that would be open. I don't think that that calculation was entirely accurate. We can get to that. Um, and I think that we haven't really gotten to the point where we're going to test that. I think they wanted to draw the IDF into the Gaza Strip. Uh, where they are willing to take losses, as they did many, many, many Hamas and other attackers have been killed, um, the ones that came into Israel. They want to inflict serious losses. They want to change the entire perspective of this conflict, which in their mind has been stalled, and show Israel's invincibility, draw Israel into a situation where the entire world, you know, people and the world have you know, the attention span of, 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 of an ant. So I lasted horrific, horrific things for a few days. And now we're going to have images of Israel um, responding. And those are also going to be really uncomfortable images uh, where civilians are going to be suffering. And that's going to stick with people in an effort to try and push this narrative that something has to change. Now, remember, Hamas is not fighting for two-state solution. They're against the two-state solution. But if there's more pressure on Israel in general, that's great for Hamas. Okay. Now, do you think that the internal division that has taken place over the past 
six to 12 months, all the protests against the Netanyahu government, the counter-protests, the perceived inner divisions in Israel. Do you think that Hamas and its backers in Iran and Hezbollah perhaps took that into account and thought that Israel would be less united in its response because of that internal division? Meaning, was that part of their calculation, thinking that Israel would be less equipped emotionally and mentally to respond the way they have? I'm going to change the way you ask the question a little bit. The bottom line answer is absolutely, but not necessarily that Israel wouldn't as a society be able to respond. I don't think they felt that if they really carried out a massive attack against Israel, Israelis wouldn't circle the wagon and put these things aside. I think they understood that, that would happen. Um, but I do think they believed that Israel was weak. I do think they believed that Israel was distracted, that there was infighting even within people within the Ministry of Defense, uh, uh, given Smutris's position there, uh, but that uh, from their perspective, relatively small-scale shooting sprees in the West Bank was really getting Israel's attention. Um, they understood it from Gilad Shalit that, if they hadn't already, how sensitive the issue of captives are. Um, and um, I think they really did think that their own ideology, what Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, has said for some time, that Israel is as weak as a spider's web, was not only true, but that it was proving to be true. And you've got to remember, you know, when 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 you were dealing with a theological organization, um, what when things happen that seem to be vindicating their position, it's it's a sign from God, right? This happens to everybody. It happens to the Jewish community too, right? I know people who've been deployed to B'nai Brock from the home command trying to convince people, oh, really, you should go in the shelter. And it's not enough to say that the Rebbe made a bracha over, over B'nai Brock. You know, we should, we should do what we can. Um, and um, which is no way, by the way, trying to make a comparison between people in B'nai Brock. Of course. And people in Hezbollah. But um, I, I do think that they felt Israel's weak and it's an opportune time. I don't think that alone is why they would have done this. I really do think that they felt the need to change the paradigm, and they saw the paradigm being about to be made even worse, maybe maybe uh, uh, forever, with the prospect of normalization with Saudi. Let me ask you about what you mentioned before in terms of the multiple fronts that Israel might find itself on right now. In fact, you and I talked yesterday. There was a short time on Thursday, about 6.30 Israel time, where there were rumors slash alerts about an influx of armed drones. There were rumors of parachutes coming in with armed terrorists. It turned out that that wasn't exactly what happened. I don't know if anyone knows exactly what happened, but it was largely now considered a technical error. Uh, you know, the, the red alert was not correct. However, we understand exactly what happened. It did bring home the fear of a multi-front war. Now, what's your feeling about the likelihood of that taking place at this point? First of all, you weren't the only person who was with me that that was happening. Um, and this really hits a nerve because that, this can be very dangerous. Hamas demonstrated that it could do a horrific, horrific thing. Um, and they are a fraction, a tiny fraction of as capable as Hezbollah. Um, and there's the potential for Hezbollah stuff from Lebanon, the potential for Hezbollah working with other Shia militants doing stuff from Syria. There's even the potential for the Houthis in Yemen in their northwest corner trying to shoot rockets towards a lot. There's a lot of different ways all this could play out. Um, and it wasn't just yesterday's false drone alert. Uh, today, uh, the IDF fired um, an Iron Dome interceptor 
Uh, and then a few minutes later, Count said, oops, uh, it would, whatever, whatever caused that interceptor to go off, that it wasn't there. So it's, we don't know. I'm concerned that maybe Israel's adversaries are figuring out ways to do things with electronic warfare that make the Israeli defense systems think that there's something there when there isn't. There are ways to do that. Allah may not have that capability, but Iran probably does. It's very, very, very dangerous for Hezbollah Iran to do that. I don't think Hezbollah wants a full-scale all-out war with Israel. Um, I think it understands that the IDF has prepped for the next war whenever it happens to be very, very different than 2006. I do think Hezbollah has been trying to uh, move the goalposts and change the rules of the game for months now, really two years. The rules of the game for a long time were, uh, unless Israel carried out something in Lebanon, or they killed Hezbollah operatives anywhere, Syria or elsewhere, Hezbollah wasn't necessarily going to respond. And so, uh, you know, the Israelis have targeted many, many, many weapons shipments, reportedly today targeting weapons shipments in Beirut and Aleppo airports. Hezbollah doesn't necessarily respond to that. But they've been moving uh, the, the Gulf Coast. They tried to launch a drone toward the Karish gas fill. They infiltrated an operative uh, who carried out an attack in Megiddo that could have been much worse than it was. They've allowed Hamas to fire rockets at Israel uh, last June. They've allowed Hamas to approach the border more recently. They referred to an Iranian shipment of oil, which was more PR than anything else. And they said, this shipment we consider to be Lebanese territory, meaning this is at a period where Israeli Iranian ship against ship, you know, this tit for tat things that were happening were going all the time. And it was clearly Hezbollah saying, if you hit this ship, we're going to consider that an attack on Lebanon. And that is within the rules of the game. We could respond to that. Uh, there are a variety of other instances where they've tried to rule, change the rules of the game. The most recent this week was Hezbollah, not in response to a particular thing other than what's going on down south, fired an anti-tank guided missile at a, an empty Israel Defense Forces vehicle. Now, the, I, it's, it's believed they knew it was empty, which is an escalation, but only so high. They tra- wanted to hit something, but they wanted to hit something that didn't have IDF personnel in it, understanding that if you know, the Israelis were killed, the response would have to be bigger. IDF responds, Israel Air Force, three Hezbollah guys are killed. That's within the rules of the game. They respond again, but they initiated this without the rules of the game. I, mean, I think we're going to see a little more of that. They'll shoot some rockets. They'll do something here. But I think they're not going to want an all-out war. I think they'd be very comfortable if they could have a two, three, four, five-day conflict, but I think they understand right now, there's no guarantee of that. The potential for miscalculation is massive. And so they are in a complicated situation, um, understanding that the Israelis are at a sensitive spot and they're not going to tolerate much right now. And so the other thing I'm looking at is what they, with some allies, might do from Syria which uh, is also a possibility, a little bit less dangerous, fewer communities right up on the line, et cetera. And also, look, Hezbollah, um, I have a podcast all about Hezbollah's uh, international activity, uh, breaking Hezbollah's golden rule. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. And um, we, we get into Hezbollah's operations around the world. The one that fell yesterday, the one that dropped yesterday was about uh, stuff in Baku, Azerbaijan. I, I do think that if Hezbollah decides it wants to get more involved in this, but in a way that doesn't say, hey, here's something I just did from Lebanon, come hit me in Lebanon. Maybe they carry out something that they believe is done with reasonable deniability and uh, and try and strike some Israeli or Jewish or American target abroad. And the final thing I'll say here is, look, the U.S. has stepped up in a big, big way. There's already been 
at least one massive rearmament shipment that's arrived in Israel. Blinken is there. I couldn't have written President Biden's comments better myself. And he gets it in the kishkis. And it's not just talk. Uh, we've sent one and apparently announcing a second aircraft carrier, uh, making it very, very clear. I understand both publicly and privately to Iran, to Hezbollah, and anybody else who wants to or doesn't want to listen, watch it. I don't think that means that the U.S. is looking to go fight Hezbollah. If we got involved, they'd start targeting our forces in Iraq again, and all kinds of things can happen. But even if not a shot is fired, the the intelligence capabilities that come with an aircraft carrier system uh, are tremendous and would be very, very useful supplements to the incredible stuff Israel already has. I think it's also a good boost to morale because those systems are, are, are parallel systems in South Dale. Uh, it's not the same system, but okay. Um, and uh, and I think the U.S. means it. Um, should it come to, God forbid, a situation where Israel somehow is seriously at risk, I don't doubt that the United States would prevent that from happening. Okay, well, that's encouraging. Let me ask you, Matt, let's go back to Hamas and Gaza again. You mentioned before that Hamas, you think, or you mentioned the possibility, may be trying to lure Israel into a ground operation. That's exactly what they want, and it sounds like Israel also wants that ground operation. So how do those two things work together? In other words, what is Israel going to do not to fall into a trap, and what do they want to accomplish through a ground operation that cannot be accomplished through the air? So I think Hamas does want to lure Israel in, but I, I, I disagree when you say that Israel wants to. Israel does not want it. Israel does not want to go on the Gaza Strip. Israel did not initiate this. Whatever happens now is not because of a decision Israel made to do something. Um, it's because of a massive terrorist attack, one of the largest international terrorist attacks ever anywhere, and the single worst day for Jews ever since the Holocaust. I mean, I don't... Well, when I said they wanted, I mean in the past six days. I, I mean, at this point, I, I didn't mean they originally wanted it. Look, I, I'm only as informed as I am, and the few things I'm informed about I'm not going to get into because that's fine. But I think it highly improbable that the IDF doesn't go in on the ground at some level. What you're seeing now is preparing the battlefield for that. You take out as much of the enemy's uh, military capability, as much of its munitions, key uh, locations, key types of weapon systems, key leadership as possible. This is obviously made infinitely more difficult by virtue of the fact that there are some 150 hostages who are being used as human shields in a double war cotton because they're being used as human shields in the first instance. And they're being used as human shields so that Hamas can continue to target civilians. So you're using civilians to protect you, war crime, and you're doing that so that you can continue to target civilians, war crime. Were it not for the fact that there were hostages, I wonder if Israel would choose to go in or go in quickly or right away, uh, as opposed to saying, okay, um, we're going to change this situation. What's going to come out of this at the end of the tunnel, whenever that is, however long that tunnel is, will not be the same as what it was last Friday. And this this model of tolerating this radical and military capability uh, Hamas, but buying it off for a de facto long-term truce, that's done. That's yesterday. But there are these uh, hostages. That complicates, complicates both the air campaign now because I don't believe it's possible to know where they all are. And if you think that Hamas leaders are not strapping them to chairs and rooms right next to them, 
again, as human shields, like you got something, I get something to sell you. I imagine there is some intelligence. And again, the intelligence failure at the border is not the same intelligence functions and systems as what would be required here. And it also really complicates the ground war. Um, but the biggest thing in the ground war, as I mentioned, is the the, the tunnels um, and the ability to over years invest in a system designed ultimately for exactly this moment. If the Israelis decide to come in or if we decide to draw them in, how do we get them so that they have no choice but to go to certain places where we'll be able to kill them? So I'm not telling you anything that the IDF is not extremely aware of. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why when you see on you know TV people saying, how could the Israelis be targeting this, this street between residential buildings? There's no military stuff here. You know, you and I can't see what's below ground. Uh, I don't believe that the Israeli Air Force is randomly bombing places. It's really uncomfortable because there are civilians in these places. And you can be as careful as you want, but you don't want to be so careful. But it's clear that the Israelis feel the need to to take out the, that, that transportation and hide out, pop out of here, pop out of there capability. Because of this, though I understand that if not already soon, there'll have been somewhere around 400,000 people called up, you're not going to see that type of an invasion. And as much as pretty much all Israelis, I imagine, want to kick the stuffing out of Hamas, um, I think the leadership understands uh, that uh, to go in full throttle is going to play into what Hamas has planned for. And so they're going to try and do it different. What that looks like, I'm glad I'm not the military planner, but there are people who are planning. Well, thank you. I want to ask you something else. You mentioned before Michelle's directive from Qatar, where he told everybody to have some sort of al-Aqsa deluge this coming Friday, which is tomorrow, October 13th, asking for people around the world, Muslims in particular, to demonstrate whatever that means and you know perhaps with a wink and a nod more than a wink and a nod to violence he also mentioned that arabs should go up against israel's borders and those arabs who live in israel to fight against israel my question is how serious do you think this threat is do you think that jews across the world should be worried do you think that israelis should be worried that something might actually happen or is this fundamentally empty rhetoric given everything else that's going on it should not surprise that in the context of what's happening especially once Hamas is done with this initial series of barbaric acts and that it is able to sit back and benefit from the really bad optics of uh, uh, Israeli air campaign against highly urban, civilly populated areas, that it was going to call for all kinds of support. Now, it's, Michal said many things, most of which are not what is being ricocheting around the Jewish community. I can't tell you how many calls I've fielded about this. Um, he called for protests, particularly the Middle East, but around the world. He called for uh, Israel's neighbors and people in neighboring states to to join the fight. He said people should uh, participate in jihad bin mal, jihad by money, donate. But really, uh, jihad of yourself. You should participate if you can. He did not say... He did not call for acts of international terrorism. He did not call for a jihad around the world. The nuance may be lost on some of the people who are hearing it. Um, and I do think that Jewish communities need to be vigilant in general, as we always have to be. 
after or in the context of these conflicts that Hamas starts, because this type of thing happens all the time. And go on your whatever your social media platform of choice is, they're all dumpster fires. Uh, and you'll see plenty of videos of people attacking Jews, protesting pro Hamas. There are just lots of people on the world who don't understand Hamas is not Palestinian. Hamas doesn't speak to Palestinians. We just released a poll taken in July, but released yesterday, showing that the vast majority of people in Gaza don't want Hamas. But that's lost on most people. Um, it's also lost on them when they think that this is because there's not a two-state solution. You have people saying the pro-Hamas, pro-two-state, they don't understand that Hamas would not appreciate that. Um, I do think we need to be vigilant. But uh, he called for protests and support. So they're going to try and Build this up. This is part of the strategy. Matt, I know your time is valuable, and I know at this time in particular, you're probably as busy as ever, but I have two quick questions. They may not be quick. My first question is this. As I mentioned, it's called the Al-Aqsa Deluge or the Al-Aqsa Flood. A lot of this is centering around the Temple Mount, at least in propaganda coming from Hamas. I want to know how much they believe their own propaganda when they say that Israel's trying to take over the Temple Mount. They want to knock down the mosque there. They want to change the status quo. Whatever the propaganda is, we in Israel think it's absurd. I'm wondering if they know it's absurd and it's a means of riling up the Palestinian street and the Arab world, or do they actually believe what they're saying? Uh, yes. There are people who truly believe it. There are also people, leaders, who realize this is just tremendously effective propaganda. Hamas needed something. It's been it's been it's been latching everything to Jerusalem for a few years now because, frankly, Gaza wasn't an enigmatic, you know, PR campaign. There are some who believe it, and frankly, it's a lot more believable when you have Ben Gvir going up to the Temple Mount, when you have Smotrich saying the things he says. Uh, there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. Israel voted for whatever it is. Uh, you can understand whether you agree with those people or not, that if you are a Palestinian and you hear Hamas saying this over here, and then you see Ben Gvir and Smotra saying thing and then going up to the Temple Mount, and then you see that there's 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 uh, conflicts that are happening there, especially if you're watching, you know, the Al Jazeera's as opposed to the whatever is a more mainstream platform, you can understand why uh people might believe it, right? Ever since cable news came around, and certainly since social media came around, what we tend to do is uh, uh, listen to echo, our own echo chambers, right? If, if, if you like Fox News, you only watch Fox News. If you like MSNBC, you'll watch MSNBC. You follow people on what used to be Twitter or wherever else you are now, we agree with you, and you tend not to follow the people who don't because it's aggravating. Um, so that happens in, in, in this community too. So there are people who absolutely believe it. I think most of the people are going to be driven out to these protests around the world. They absolutely believe it. Um, I, I had a experience helping someone here in America yesterday who was dealing with a professor who is a social justice person, uh, African-American, and and was very anti-Israel and pro-Hamas because this is more whites targeting blacks. It's like, she believes this. PhD, highly educated person. But the bottom line is, it's very effective, radicalizing, and more importantly, mobilizing propaganda. Ideology and propaganda are much, much, much more important for mobilizing people to do something. Lots of ways to get people angry and radicalized. Frankly, with everything that's going on, everyone on all sides is going to be angry and radicalized right now, right? Um, how do you mobilize someone to actually do something? That's where ideology comes in. And here, if you can convince you that you are actually, we had no choice, we are defending, and it's the third holy site in Islam, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it can be very effective propaganda. 
Okay, Matt, and my final question for you is something that you said towards the beginning of our conversation when you talked about a six-month conflict rather than a six-day war. Can you just explain why you think it's going to be so long? Maybe that isn't so long, but certainly in Israel, we're used to much quicker campaigns. Six months is a very long time. Look, first of all, I'm not saying that the nature of the campaign, you know, in, in month two, three, four, five, and six, or whatever it's going to be, is going to be the same as it is now, God forbid. And by the way, the optics are going to get worse because hopefully the day-to-day life of Israelis will improve day by day. And please God, the number of people who are being killed and wounded and maybe even held hostage will will drop over time, uh, and they will increase uh, over time in the Gaza Strip as the campaign goes on because of Hamas. Um, but the reason, I think, is because to the extent that the goal actually is, and I believe it is, to change the status quo so that Hamas, at the end of this, wherever the end is, however long it takes, is nowhere near what it was on Friday, nowhere near where it's been the past few years. The entire paradigm is going to change. I don't think that it actually is we're going to eliminate Hamas. You can't eliminate Hamas any more than you can eliminate white supremacy. Uh, It's like the war on crime or the war on drugs. Hamas is a terrible terrorist and, and, and militant entity. It is also a social, political, and religious entity. You don't have to like it to recognize that, but it is that. Instead, it's going to be knocking it down to such midget size where it has none of the capabilities it has now. And maybe to the point where it can't rule at all. Um, maybe to the point where it can barely rule, but it can barely do that. I don't know. I think one of the most difficult things to answer is what is Gaza Strip and governance in the Gaza Strip going to look like at the end of this? I've spoken to several people about it who are in a position, and they're like, yeah, that is not today's conversation. And I get that. It's going to need to start being a conversation pretty soon, though, because going into something without knowing what you're planning for is pretty much what the U.S. did in Iraq. It didn't work out so well. I think that as the Israelis deal with this, they're going to be dealing with it as slowly as possible. You do this very, very fast. That means going in big, big numbers on the ground. And that means lots of dead Israeli soldiers would be born. Uh, God forbid. So, um, and more um, more casualties uh, among the Palestinians as well. To the extent you can do this methodically and slowly, the more effective it will be. Again, the biggest complicating points here are two. One, the hostages, those who've been kidnapped, and two, the potential for a second front. Um, and so if we can neutralize that threat in the north a little bit, which I think over time can happen, um, and maybe there's some way to move forward on the hostages. I think this is why Israel's taking this is a hard line. On, uh, not a word I would have used, but what Israeli officials have said is a siege of Gaza. No fresh water, no medicine, no gas, no electricity. But they're doing it very clearly. They make a stark choice for Hamas. Do you prioritize governance for your constituents? In which case, release the hostages and we'll let this all go in tomorrow. Or do you prioritize your militancy at any cost? Unfortunately for Hamas, this is not an uncomfortable question. For you and me, this would be a very uncomfortable question. It's not an uncomfortable question for them. They don't want to release the hostages because it's their best bargaining chip and protection against all kinds of strikes. And Israel's not going to give in on these issues, uh, the siege, until some are released. After it was involved in some of the attempted negotiations that Hamas said no to, now reportedly Turkey is. I understand that some members of the Israeli Arab community, the Islamic movement in the South, I've been trying to negotiate this, articulating that this is against all principles of Islam. It's the Islamic movement in the north that is closer aligned to Hamas than the south, far more moderate. I, I don't have a crystal ball. 
Okay. Well, Dr. Matthew Levitt, Matt, it's a difficult conversation, but it's still a pleasure talking with you. And thank you for enlightening me and my listeners and helping us understand a lot better about what's going on. And we should know good news in the near future. Thanks so much. We should. I got to tell you, it's been really, really hard for me to not tell stories about you from our youth. And, and the only reason I'm not is because we have serious issues to discuss and you could tell stories about me. And so this mutual deterrence. Right. It would go both yeah. directions. Okay. Exactly. It's a fair trade. I think I win. <laughs> Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>